This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. Lately, you might have heard economists and politicians talk about how the war in Ukraine and the economic impact of the pandemic is leading to inflation. What they're essentially saying is that most of the things we buy every day are getting more expensive and the cost of living is rising. This is about cost of living pressures that are real and that Australians are facing and that's why they need the support now. The cost of everything is going up, but your pay isn't. The costs keep piling up and have been piling up for some time now. Today, you'll hear about how the cost of living is hitting some people hard, including people with full-time jobs. And you'll also hear what the government and the opposition plan to do about it. It's Tuesday, the 19th of April. Hello, how you going? Not bad, how are you? Stephanie Convery is an inequality reporter at Guardian Australia. So, Steph, as inequality reporter, you've been looking at the cost of living and how it's been impacting people. What are the main things that have become more expensive for regular people over the past year? I think everyone you speak to these days will say that everything has gone up. I mean, we're currently in the middle of a rental crisis. Everyone knows that rents are skyrocketing everywhere and have been really since the start of the pandemic, we've been seeing rents going up all around the country. Groceries also have been going up, particularly in the last few months, we've really noticed a a shift in prices at the supermarket. And of course, there's petrol as well. With the war in Ukraine, the price of petrol has skyrocketed. It was hitting over $2 a litre in Sydney not very long ago. And, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen that. Mm. I don't remember seeing that in my lifetime. So according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, consumer prices rose 3.5% and wages just 2.3% last year. And basically Mm. what that means is your salaries are not keeping up with the cost of living. You're not getting enough money to pay for the things that you need to pay for. Um, And even those on full-time incomes are struggling. This is one of the things that is really striking about the situation we're currently in. So, Steph, to understand the cost of living, you've been speaking to a whole bunch of people. One of them is Julie Marie Hay. What can you tell us about Julie and her situation? Okay, so I'm Julie Marie Hay and I am 41 years of age now. So Julie is 41, she's an enrolled nurse and she works full-time in Perth where she lives. I couldn't imagine doing anything else really, really love what I do for my patients and just spending so much more time with people and being able to help them through some of the hardest moments. Sometimes it's the smallest things that makes the biggest difference in those critical times. She's the sole primary carer of three children, all of whom have ADHD. And uh, Julie says that she didn't always struggle on her nurse's salary, but in the last year or so, pretty much since the pandemic started, it has been a significant challenge. On top of her nurse's salary, she also receives small supplementary payments from Centrelink and occasional child support payments. And all of those things together is still not enough to keep the family's heads above water. Right. So what has happened with her budget in the last year? How have her costs risen? 
So Julie says that pretty much everything she has to pay for has gone up in price. So if we just look at fuel, for example, she has a small Mazda 3, which she drives to work every day. She doesn't live close to her workplace. There's no other option for her than to drive to work. It used to cost her around $60 to fill. When I first spoke to her, it was costing more like $80 or $90 to fill. And that was even before petrol hit the skyrocketing prices that it has in the last few weeks. Rent has also gone up massively in Perth. So Julie's rose $60 per week last April, $60 per week. Mm. As of a few weeks ago, it's gone up by another $30. So that's $90 per week in one year that she's paying more than she was before. It's pretty dire. Like I, I don't really know how to, how to even find that extra $60 a fortnight at the moment. What else is impacting her budget at the moment? So her kids have pretty high medical needs and they all require regular visits to a paediatrician. And that's around $600 every six months, give or take the doctor's actual fee structure. Medication on top of that, which she estimates was approximately $220 a month. My daughter's on like a like a lower dose of the Concerta, so it's a longer acting one. So that's 40 something dollars, $43, I think, for her. I think I paid $125 for three scripts the last time I went to the chemist. And that doesn't include everything that they need because I choose what I can get from what I have and then we make it. We make it work. And then there's GP visits in between for supplementary scripts, which she says she does instead of going to the paediatrician, which is vastly more expensive. Julie says that she has been shorter every fortnight by about $300 over the last year alone. And that's without any loans. I guess I'm really lucky because I don't have any loans. So I don't have any personal loans. I don't own like a car loan or anything like that. Um, If I did, then I would drown. Like I I seriously would not be able to survive. Right. So she has to fork out $300 more each fortnight. Does she have $300 to spare, especially with her wage as a nurse? Julie earns about $1,900 a fortnight after tax. She says that she hasn't had a wage increase in four years, So she's an enrolled nurse, which is different to a registered nurse. She's essentially paid the same as a graduate nurse, even though she's been in the industry for 20 years. Um, And she says that they're asking for a 4% increase for their next round of pay rises. If they got that, on the back of the envelope calculation, she might get about $74, $75 more in her take-home pay per fortnight. That's if her tax doesn't change which still doesn't cover the extra $300 a fortnight that she and her children require to survive. And if her rent goes up again, which it might, given it has already twice in the last year for her, then it's not going to cover any of that. Julie doesn't have a wealthy family. She doesn't have backstops that she can rely on in this situation. If she doesn't get a salary increase, she's going to really struggle. She's already struggling. I... I'm concerned that I'm not going to be able to continue paying the rent as it is. I won't be able to keep my car on the road. I won't be able to afford the things that my children need. I don't really know how I'm going to make it work over the next 12 months, got to be honest. It sounds like there's really just no spare room in her budget. What does she do with that? How is she making ends meet? This is one of the things that I find really striking talking to people who are dealing with situations like Julie's is the the various methods they use to try to manage on simply not enough 
money. Mm. And I think anybody who has experienced a low income or no income understands what that means. I get creative with everything. Um. (laughs) So for her, because her children are inflexible about what they will and won't eat, she can't really budget very much around groceries. She has to buy particular foods. That means that she limits her own food. So she eats fewer meals a day or she eats what's left over. She puts herself last when it comes to nutrition. Mm. She's also taught herself to service her own car to save on routine maintenance. Her children have stopped all of their activities outside of school. I have pretty much had to stop my children from doing all extracurricular activity. They used to do scouts and they loved it. My daughter only got to go a few times. She got invested and she got to go a few times and then I had to stop sending them because I couldn't afford the fees and I couldn't afford to send them on camps. She also has to split bills, so she pays off part of a bill at one time and then part of another. But that's not always possible. Sometimes it's just something comes in and you've got to pay that and that takes precedent and then you juggle and you drop everything else. She's also holding off buying new clothes for her kids, even though they need them because she just doesn't have the money to spare for them. She also sometimes will have to wash clothes every night so that her children have something to wear to school the next day. I haven't bought them school clothes this year at all. My eldest son has one pair of school shorts and one shirt. So I'm trying really hard to find enough money so that I can actually go and buy him just another couple of shirts and another couple of pairs of shorts and a pair of pants for winter and a jumper because last year's when jumpers don't fit anymore. And all of these sacrifices really weigh on Julie. You lose the joy in life. I used to be able to get up in the morning and even though my kids were not behaving the way that I needed them to, to get ready for school and things like that, I still managed to be able to keep a positive outlook. I used to love my job. I'm starting to kind of get to the point where it's tiring me out. It's harder to like the things about it that I used to like. I don't want to go in there feeling like I've got like a weight on my shoulders. I want to be able to go in there and be able to give my all to my patients. It's hard to do that when you leave work and come home and try to work out what you can feed people. So, Steph, I'm wondering what you thought about Julie's story after speaking to her because, I mean, I imagine most people would assume that a nurse is paid a decent wage, especially in a pandemic. But as she has told you, she is worried about making rent. She can't afford some of the basics. So what was your reaction to that? It's pretty distressing to hear that even somebody who has a full-time salary can't make ends meet in this day and age. I mean, the more that I talk to people for this role, the more stories like this I hear. Um, So it becomes less surprising, but it is still distressing and new when you hear somebody's story and the lengths that they have to go to in order to keep their family clothed and fed and with a roof over their head. Mm. Um, I think what really struck me, particularly doing interviews for this story, was that we are well past a time when a single full-time income could sustain a household. Like the nuclear family dream of the 1950s is simply not possible Mm. these days. And 
it's really clear that somebody like Julie never expected that she would struggle this much on a full-time nurse's wage. Julie says that everyone in nursing is feeling it, but when she told her story for the first time... My colleagues had no idea how tough I do it. They didn't realise exactly what it means for me to be able to survive each fortnight, go into work and do what I do, standing side by side with them. They're all struggling as well. Everybody's got something that they can't afford anymore. As you mentioned, though, Julie does have a full-time wage. What about all the people who don't, who are living on even less than Julie? How are they feeling about the cost of living right now? So I think it's really important that when we're talking about the cost of living crunch, we also put front of mind those people who are forced to rely entirely or almost entirely on welfare payments, including job seeker, the disability support pension, the aged pension, other payments. Things are tough for those people who are earning a full-time salary, but things are even tougher for those people who need to rely on government support payments. We see this time and time again in research. Welfare recipients are completely priced out of the private rental market and those who do rent regularly can't afford other basics like clothes or food. Next, how to ease the cost of living in Australia. So, Steph, to address this cost of living crisis, the budget really was called a cost of living budget that was handed down last month. There were quite a few measures in there to address the cost of living. Can you talk us through those? So the federal government's current solution is to basically propose a bunch of tax cuts and concessions. So the first is a $420 tax offset for low to middle income earners. That equals about $4.1 billion. They have also included some other one-off payments. That includes $250 for concession card holders. In total, that means approximately $1.5 billion. They're also temporarily halving the fuel excise, which basically means they're making petrol cheaper by cutting the tax on it for a solid six months. So that will run from the 30th of March to the 28th of September this year. But there's been some criticism of all of these measures. Right. It's been a couple of weeks since this budget was handed down. What has been the general response and the criticism of this budget? So some of the key research that's come out since then, um, particularly out of Australian National University's Centre for Social Research and Methods, is an analysis of those measures that basically shows the vast majority of the benefits will go towards middle and upper income earners, not the people who are most worse off. Mm. So Associate Professor Ben Phillips from the centre basically came to the conclusion that the tax offset itself, that's the $420 tax offset, was probably not really needed. The $250 one-off cash payment to people on low incomes basically fails to address the systemic issues with the rate of welfare. This is Phillips' take and it is essentially supported by a whole lot of organisations working in the welfare and social services space. Basically, a $250 flat payment, he says, is nice, but not much in the scheme of things. And for people on welfare payments, I'd be more concerned about the long-term problem, which is that they don't receive enough money on a weekly basis. Mm. Crucially, I think households that are experiencing the most amount of financial stress, which is those who are in the lowest 20% when they're ranked by income, received only 15% of the financial gains from those measures. In fact, 
The modelling from the Australian National University basically showed that most of the money was going to go back to households that are already making more money overall. So it's not going where it's needed, which is to people on the lowest incomes who need the most support to keep up with the astronomical rise in the cost of living. Mm. The other criticism of these budget measures has come from the opposition. So Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers said in his budget reply speech in Canberra on Budget Day that the Coalition's budget was, quote, chock full of waste that could be trimmed. Hmm. So what does Julie make of the budget measures that were announced to ease this pressure on her and ease the pressure on the cost of living? Really understandably, she says that they're not enough and she can't see how they're going to drastically change the situation. It's not going to help me now. Like, how does that help me get through my fortnight to fortnight? I'm not eligible for the one-off payment. I think the one-off payment is a bit of a slap in the face to those of us who are really struggling. We don't really have the opportunity to use a one-off payment in a way that is constructive. It doesn't help pay your bills over a period of time. It might pay one. I don't know how I'm going to cover it and I don't know how anybody else does. And the things that the government's doing is not helping at all. How has the government responded to these types of criticisms and to the overall point that this budget maybe isn't fair, doesn't actually do a lot for the low-income people? The government basically says that it is fair. Frydenberg went on ABC 7.30 on budget night and he called the measures fair. He said they were... A dramatic and material improvement to the bottom line. And were very practical, responsible measures that respond to people's needs. We've provided cost of living relief, which is really important to Australian families right now. This is the number one topic of discussion around the kitchen table and we've done it in a practical and a temporary and in a targeted way. So, Steph, we do know that things could get worse from here. Rental prices and inflation are predicted to rise. And while the government does say that wages will go up, they have been wrong about that a whole bunch of times in the past, and many experts have significant doubts about this. So I'm wondering what that's going to look like over the next year or so in the broader sense. What types of things will we see? I think what is going to become apparent socially is that A lot of people who we've never seen, who have never faced precarity before, who have never faced financial insecurity before, are going to find themselves in really unstable situations, whether their mortgage is too much for their income, whether they just can't sustain the kind of lifestyle they used to live, whether they suddenly get sick and don't have the savings or the family members or friends to help them out in those situations. Like, I think we will hear more and more stories from the people that we know of hardship and struggle. And for those who are already experiencing hardship and struggle, that is just going to deepen and become more prolonged. I think we're really at the point now where not only are there so many people already in entrenched poverty as a consequence of changes to the cost of living over the last couple of years, but like policy settings from years and decades previously that have led to this, particularly in in the welfare and social services space. But we're going to see more people ending up there and we're going to see more people wondering how they got there and feeling very alienated from the people who made decisions that put them there. With that in mind, Steph the kind of fairly bleak picture that you've you've painted there of the next year or so. I'm wondering if either of the major parties 
have a plan for this that will help people in a systemic way with the cost of living? So I think it's pretty clear that what the coalition has proposed is a short-term solution. And this has been the opinion of many people since the budget was announced. Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers has said that if Labor formed government, it would have the opportunity to reorient the budget before the end of the year and that it would consider the economic circumstances at the time. He said, quote, it's hard to imagine a world where the cash handouts in the current budget will continue indefinitely. Right, but Labor has made a bit of noise around the cost of living and wages. They're backing a significant pay increase for aged care workers. And Albanese has also said that he will prioritise tackling wage stagnation and will convene a kind of special summit to do so. Have there been any other significant announcements from Labor? I think it's important to note that Labor did flip-flop last Tuesday, backtracking on some of its inequality promises. The Shadow Assistant Minister, Andrew Lee, confirmed it would not commit to lifting the job seeker payment and they also ditched an independent review around that that they had proposed in 2019, citing budget restraints. So they've expressly ruled out increasing welfare payments for some of the worst off. How have people responded to this? People in the sector have responded to that with outrage, basically. I think there had been a lot of hopes pinned on a Labor government really shifting gears for the country with regards to welfare and Labor's essentially signalled that it's not going to do that, which is extremely disappointing for huge swathes of people. Right. So what do the experts in these sectors say would really help? What are they kind of crying out for in terms of cost of living measures right now? Well, we know that one of the things that would massively help the people on the lowest incomes in the country is a substantial rise in the rate of JobSeeker and the other welfare payments that they rely on. There's so much evidence to show that the doubled rate back at the start of the pandemic was enormously beneficial for people. That's socially, economically, even medically. Anyone relying on those payments saw their quality of life increase substantially when the rates were doubled. And the entire welfare and social services sector is essentially united behind the need for a substantial rise in social security payments. And companies basically need to pay their workers more. Wages need to go up. And that goes to the nature of our industrial relations system and the environment in which that happens. And that's a whole other story. But between those two things, wages growth and increases in welfare payments, we could see a whole different kind of society. I think we all need a raise. I think we actually need to be paid what we deserve to do what we do on the front line and to do the things that everyone's doing in terms of their everyday life. We all give our all. I don't understand why we're not treated with respect and shown that we are deserving of a pay that actually gives us the living experience that we should be getting. I don't want to dread going into work anymore. I want to be able to love what I do again. I don't want to feel like what I'm doing there is not worth what I'm doing. That was Julie Marie Hay and Stephanie Convery, an inequality reporter at Guardian Australia. This episode was produced by Jake Morecambe and Karishma Luthria, who also did the sound design. Mixing by Miles Martignoni. 
The executive producers of Full Story are Gabrielle Jackson, Miles Montagnoni and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. If you liked this episode, don't forget to leave a rating or a review. It does help other people find the show. Okay, catch you tomorrow.